else who finds himself drowning in a bucket of cream has two choices. Drown or fight so hard he churns that cream into butter. And simply climbs out. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. Fantastic a live segment with Vanessa Bealy just before the break. Uh, if you missed any of that, that'll be up on the archives after the show. Uh, I'm here in studio with Mike Robinson, editor of the UK Column. Hello, Mike. Evening, Patrick. Thank you for joining us again this week, Mike. And uh, on the line, uh, we have another special guest, independent journalist Eva Bartlett is joining us right now on the live link uh, from Syria. Hello, Eva. Hi, Patrick. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Eva. It's it's an absolute pleasure uh, to connect you this week uh, on the Sunday Wire and uh, we were talking to uh, your colleague, uh, Vanessa, before the break about some of her uh, observations and some of the things that she's seen and how things are developing in Syria. Uh, you've been uh, on the ground there for a few weeks, Eva. How has how this, this trip been for you so far? Um, you know, in contrast to previous years, this one has been a lot more uplifting because there were so many positive developments in Syria nowadays. Um, the first one that both Vanessa and I um, uh, attended was the opening ceremony of the um, 60th Damascus International Fair. Um, and this fair was uh, interrupted in the years 2012 to 2016 because of the presence of the terrorists in eastern Ghouta and also in Yermouk. Um, so it's significant that this year the fair went off without a hitch. There was no bombing like last year. Last year the fair was actually targeted. Um, and six people were killed, including participants. Uh, but this year, the fair um, was smooth, uh, it was well attended, and it was really, uh, I, I think both Vanessa and I felt very emotional the first night because it was just so significant of, of the fact that Syria is returning to peace. Um, I went back to the fair a few times after the opening night, and um, I spoke with the general director just to get some statistics, and he said there were, um, let me just check here, I believe it was over... It was 1,722 country, uh, companies, sorry, participating in the fair, um, 48 countries participating. And um, there was a heavy presence of uh, Russian and Iranian and Indian companies, but also other companies like the South Korean, um, even some Western companies. And um, when I talked with this uh, a Russian representative of a company, he basically said, like in previous years, they couldn't foresee serious future, but this year felt like the right time to start investing and participating in the fair. So, I mean, it was very uplifting to see this happening because, they, you know, Syrians have been, um, especially in the Damascus area, they've been subject to terrorism from Eastern Ghouta for years and years and years. And so now, without the liberation of Eastern Ghouta and also Yarmouk, um, the fair maybe couldn't have happened or it would have been very dangerous to have held. Um, so, you know, that was one very positive thing. The other thing I attended was the um, annual festival in Malula, the Festival of the Cross, which is something that's been celebrated for almost 1,700 years. 
Um, and the only time it wasn't celebrated was when terrorists occupied uh, Malula between September 2013 and April 2014, a combination of occupying or targeting Malula. And so um, it's been held since the liberation of Malula in April 2014, but this was the first year I had a chance to go, and it was a fantastic um, celebration. It began with people attending Mass in one of the different churches in Malula, and that in itself was quite moving, just to see the devotion that, that people there practice, um, you know, age-old traditions they're practicing, hymns that they're singing that have been sung for um, so many years, and to know that this is what the terrorists uh, were trying to destroy, this culture, this rich fabric and society. Um, because I actually was in Malula in June 2014, two months after it was liberated, and so at that time the, the destruction was quite fresh. So I could see how much damage had been done to these heritage sites, to the relics. Um, and um, that cannot be replaced. But, you know, thankfully now um, I was back in 2016 and now back this year. And a lot of restoration has taken place. And I think most significantly, other than material objects, is that the people continue the practice that they have for centuries. Um, in addition to the, you know, the, the, the church um, uh, masses, Right afterwards, people literally streamed out of the church and into the church courtyard and um, started celebrating the Festival of the Cross, which basically involved a lot of chanting. I didn't understand it, um, but uh, and they, might, they, they were most likely chanting in Aramaic, but like a lot of cheering. And the cheering part I did understand. They were cheering for Syria, they were cheering for their army, their president. And it was a really enthusiastic, festive um, hour or so in the main square and then people made their way up to the mountaintops where there were these massive crosses erected um, and throughout the night there were bonfires people were singing uh, even dancing on the mountaintop even as, as high and, and dangerous that, as that might seem they were drinking um, and I talked with a, a good friend of I think all of ours Abdul Haddad and I'm going to quote from him because it's uh, what he said was so succinct he said um, he said that night they were celebrating the festival, the finding of the cross that happened 17 years ago, I'm sorry, 1700 years ago, um, which is represented by putting fire on the tops of the mountains from Jerusalem to Constantinople to tell people there that the cross was found. But even most significantly is that Malula is the only place in the world that still celebrates this custom. Um, and as I mentioned before, it was only interrupted when the so-called revolutionaries occupied that ancient village. So... It was really remarkable to see people celebrating again what they've celebrated for um, nearly 1,700 years. Yes, and, and for those people who aren't aware, that is probably one of the only places uh, left uh, that uh, the uh, original, the ancient language of Aramaic is, um, is spoken, uh, and that you would hear that in a Mass uh, as well, in a, in a church service. Uh, it is one of the only places left. Uh, so this is really important to preserve in terms of uh, Christian heritage, but just general uh, Middle Eastern heritage as well. It's absolutely unique and so important to preserve. And as Eva had uh, you know, explained just a few minutes ago, very close to have been lost, uh, in fact. Uh, so it is a tremendous story. Um, yeah, M Malula is 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 the war in a nutshell. Almost Eva, um, it it does symbolize so much. It represents so much that that small village, that story, uh, and it does embody the, uh, the 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 great spirit as well. Uh, and overcoming the odds, 
this this is all wrapped up in that story uh, with Malula. It's absolutely extraordinary. It is an extraordinary place, Eva. It's a very inspirational place, and it's inspired many writers and poets uh, and many artists, photographers, everybody over over many centuries. So uh, this this town of Malula in Syria, it's extremely extremely important. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, so another place, uh, kind of on the theme of positive development, another place that I went to was um, Dada City, which I had been to in May um, this year prior to its liberation. So I think uh, we might have spoken after that time in May. But anyway, um, when I went there in May, it was the city was being shelled by terrorists in southern and other areas of Dada al-Balad and elsewhere, out, outskirts of Dada. So it was um, it was dangerous for civilians um, to be there, to live, to exist, to get to their state hospital, which was essentially the only functioning hospital um, in Dada. And I, at that time, in May 2018, I, I went to the hospital, and it involved um, a treacherous uh, journey down a, a, a lane where snipers were only about 100 meters off, terrorist snipers, to be clear. Um, and much of the hospital, when I saw it in May, uh, was either damaged or destroyed, including in critical areas like operations rooms, um, the children's hospital, um, the gynecology ward, the pharmacy area, like many, many, many areas were either damaged, destroyed, or off limits. Um, so when I went back this time, the, the vast difference was that it was now safe to travel there. Um, unfortunately, these areas that were destroyed haven't been repaired yet. It will take a lot of work uh, to do so. But uh, when I was there this time, I, w- I went outside, out back the hospital, and I saw one of the reasons why it had been so dangerous to be in some of these wards, and that was that um, one of the main Nusra headquarters was just 50 meters away from the hospital. Um, so that and that included the area 50 meters away from the area where the children's hospital was. So it was interesting to see that, um, and but also uh, positive to know that at least the terrorist presence has ended there and the rebuilding can begin. And indeed, when I was driving around through the city, um, I saw bulldozers scraping up rubble, people sweeping up rubble. So the cleanup process beginning. Um, I also, while in the hospital, just like I did in, in May uh, this year, I spoke with people, um, civilians, in this case, um, employees of the hospital, about events in 2011, just to see what their take was. Did it, you know, mesh with what corporate media told us about peaceful protests in 2011 that were then, you know, um, gunned down by Syrian security forces, or was there a different story? And just like I heard in May, um, this time I also heard from these hospital employees that no, the the protests were not wholly peaceful. Yes, there might have been protesters who had that intent, but they were um, amongst the protesters. There were armed people and. In May, when I went there, I spoke to the priest, Father Jerzy Rizik, and he told me he saw people coming from Dada countryside riding motorcycles with motor with um, weapons underneath them and shooting on government um, buildings. And this time as well, when I spoke with people, they said they spoke with the violence that they saw in the early protest and the sectarian slogans they heard in the early protest. So um, it's going to take some time to type up those notes because I, I know you're aware um, when you're traveling around, you keep accumulating information. It's hard to set aside time to deal with the notes. But anyway, it's just more corroboration of what we already know that this wasn't an organic uh, protest movement. This was pre-planned and, uh, and there were very nasty elements in the, amongst the protesters that were shooting on civilians and security forces. But also when I went to Dada, I, I visited a, a town just, uh, around four kilometers east of the city, a nine-minute town, and it was occupied since, I believe, 2012, 
it's not a huge town. It's about 20, uh, 12,000 people. And it was liberated um, this past July. And it was controlled, um, at least in the later stages, by a Nusra-affiliated group. And so there wasn't a whole lot to see. There was a lot of destruction because the army was fighting these Nusra terrorists. But I visited two houses. One had been completely stripped of everything by the terrorists that occupied the house, including even doors. And some of the rooms had been burned before the terrorists uh, left the area. So this family was struggling to rebuild their lives in the shell of a house. And another home not far away where there were tunnels leading from this man's home to two other houses. And a similar situation, just complete devastation for the family. They have to rent a place until they can somehow rebuild or repair what they had before. So, and this is the kind of thing, as you know, Patrick, that plays out everywhere when we see a liberated area. It's it's all these stories of human lives that have been destroyed, not by, as we're told, the Syrian government, but by the terrorists that were occupying their areas. Yes. And by the way, what Eva said is absolutely correct about stripping the houses. Uh, I saw that in Tadmore, uh, but we also saw that in uh, in Aleppo as well, at where they were retreating, <laughs> moving through parts of East Aleppo or some of these housing projects, took everything, including the fixtures in the bathrooms, the taps, the doorknobs, nothing, yeah. everything, everything went. Not it's, I mean, talk about stripping it, everything went. Never seen anything like it. And according to the reports that we uh, heard, and this was also corroborated by others, that a lot of this stuff was shipped into Turkey and ended up uh, uh, at flea markets or in sort of uh, yards and secondhand trade in Turkey. Uh, absolutely incredible. So they stripped half of Syria, ended up in Turkey for sale. Yeah, go ahead. I, I didn't know about the Turkey connection, but uh, I... I heard this also in in hum's old city in um june 2014 same story exactly same story everything stripped every sellable um piece of uh copper or furnishing stripped there yeah and, and on orient news which is one of these opposition media outlets i think they're based in uh, abu dhabi or something they're running reports saying that the syrian army were looting flats basically, in the early days. And I think even down in, in, in Dara uh, in the early days, and when in fact it was the opposite. Uh, and so the looting was being done by the so-called rebels, and who we now know uh, many of them are terrorists. So that's the that's the fact of the matter. But, um, but go ahead, Eva, sorry about that. No, no, not at all. Um, so the other place I, I've gone to... Um well, in uh, a couple of weeks ago, on September 11th, I went to Maharde, and I, I'm sure Vanessa might have spoke about this. I'm not sure she spoke about this tonight, so I don't want to repeat what she said. Um, did she address Maharde tonight? Um, is, is this the uh, the town in uh, Idlib? This is a town in northern Hama, um, close to Idlib, and it's been okay. attacked for years and years by terrorists in northern Hama, um, but terrorists who have support from uh, those in Idlib. And um, from the front lines, terrorists are literally just two kilometers away. And uh, Vanessa was there before I was, and she she was there. Actually, when she went, she was able to see the National Defense Forces collecting the prohibited cluster bomblets that were used on this town. So it's a town of like 23,000 people. And on September 7th, not for the first time, it was targeted. But this time it was targeted with, um, I was told, nine grad missiles, six of which were fitted with these prohibited cluster sub-munitions. And um, 
by September 19th, 13 civilians have died. Um, some of them were killed right away. Others died of their injuries. And uh, as I was going to say, Vanessa was there um, a couple of days after the attack. And she, when she was there, the NDF, the local National Defense Forces, were exploding the leftover cluster, cluster bomblets so that more people weren't injured or killed. Um, when I went there, I met with um, one man whose whose life was totally destroyed by this attack, and his story is the story of Syrians all over Syria. It's you know the story of heartbreak of losing everything um, in in one attack, and it wasn't the first time his house had been attacked. It was the third time, but this time um, Shadi Shahadi he lost his wife, his mother, and his three young children to this terrorist bombing. So um, I, I took footage. It's really heartbreaking stuff. Um, him talking about his children. Uh, showing f- photos, photos. I'm sorry, of his children in church, in amusement parks, and you know, with the family, and also his children um, after they had died. Um, but I asked him, even though he, they were targeted by terrorists um, in northern Hama, I'd, I'd asked him about Idlib because you know this is the burning question now. Um, corporate media is saying it's speaking about loss of life or the worry about loss of life of civilians in Idlib. And, of course, the Syrian army and government do worry about that because they have loved ones in Idlib. It's not like they're totally um, not concerned with civilians in Idlib. But the huge irony, of course, is that just like when we were seeing the build-up to the liberation of Ghouta and before that Aleppo, etc., we're always hearing these crocodile-tier kind of concerns about civilians in these areas, but we're never hearing the other side of the civilians who are actually being murdered by terrorists occupying these areas or supported by terrorists in these areas. And so that was the case with, with um, Shadi. And um, he said, we need to get rid of them and end the situation. It's been eight years of, of shelling, and there isn't a house that doesn't have a martyr or someone injured. Their suffering is indescribable. So um, I, I think that his story is very important because it isn't just his story. It's the story of Syrians throughout Syria, wherever there are al-Nusra, al-Qaeda, FSA, Zinki, whatever color of terrorist um, they might be occupying these areas. Yeah, that is a really, really important point. And uh, and a lot of these areas also are targeted for their uh, religious uh, affiliation. So there's the sectarian element that uh, certainly the West uh, and its Gulf partners are very, very keen to accentuate uh, in Syria to try to ramp up sectarian strife. Certainly, this is what's happening in Iraq over, over many years, and we see it happening uh, as well in, in Syria. But, uh, yeah, really important, Eva, uh, to see the other side of that. Unfortunately, Eva, I have to say, uh, I, I do watch uh, quite a lot of mainstream coverage, uh, and I know they have teams there. Uh, I even know that CNN, in fact, had a, had a team that was allowed to to roam around Syria, but uh, I didn't really see them cover this story, although they, I think they might have uh, after maybe it was you or Vanessa, I can't remember, but um, I mean, they maybe they mentioned it or they inquired about it, but actually didn't actually cover it uh, because it just didn't seem to fit what they went, what, what the, the, the story that they wanted to portray uh, in the U.S. media about what you know? What the narrative was, let's say, in Syria, uh, in the run-up to what looked like a major confrontation in Idlib, what you just described, Eva, uh, I don't think that fit into the U.S. media agenda uh, during that time. So therefore, it did, it didn't happen. It didn't exist. Basically, never never yeah. happened. 
Today I was looking at news um, and uh, I saw that uh, yesterday the same group that, according to the National Defense Forces in um, Harvey, the same terrorist group that targeted them on September 7th, Jaysh al-Iza, they rejected this deal, you know, the deal that Russia and Turkey brokered for um, a demilitarized zone. So the same terrorists that have targeted this town on many occasions are rejecting this deal. And so this means that they're just going to continue targeting this town. And the, as you mentioned, the corporate media isn't going to take note of it. They're just going to continue regurgitating their um, their lies about concern about civilians in Idlib. But, you know, um, there there is the humanitarian corridor open in eastern Idlib. And um, another site I was looking at was saying um, for in recent days, an average of 450 or 500 people have been leaving through the Abu Dhar corridor. So um, again, there is a will, a political will from Syria, from Russia and its allies for, uh, sorry, a will for a political resolution to this. But, you know, you have Nikki Haley shrilling about um, if there's any sort of an attack on Idlib, then the U.S. is going to retaliate. And they have no right whatsoever to say this when Syria does have a right to fight terrorism. Because, you know, if we flip the tables, if this was in a, a U.S. city, in if this was in a city in the U.S., absolutely they would fight Al Qaeda and other terrorists to to provide the safety uh, for the civilians in this area. So that's exactly what the Syrian army and its allies are doing. And that's what they have done. And you know, you've gone to Aleppo, I, I believe, after it was liberated, right, Patrick? So you've seen yeah. the return of life. And many of us have gone to other areas like Ghouta after, after it was liberated. Tim Anderson was just in in eastern Ghouta and showing wonderful photos of children back at school. You know, it was unthinkable while terrorists were occupying those areas. Yeah, poor kids didn't... Imagine not have. Imagine when this war started. Imagine if you were seven, eight, or nine years old. And some of kids in Syria, many kids, met thousands and thousands of kids, uh, uh, basically denied a formal education for seven years. That Think about that. From, let's say, nine years old to 16 years old or 15 years old, not having any formal education, you're talking about losing a whole generation uh, in terms of education, in terms of, you know, uh, members of society or getting them into the workforce, that is absolutely massive. And I don't think uh, that that's a fundamental story, Eva, but that that has hardly ever been covered. Um, in, in, and we spoke to some kids, Eva, in East Aleppo, and guess guess where they were getting schooled during occupation? <laughs> it wasn't in a school, I'll tell you right now. It was in what, what yeah. the local mosque, okay? I can't imagine what they were teaching those poor kids, you know, for four or five years. Uh, and, you know, the Banna Alabeds of the world uh, during that yeah, time. Yeah, well, Having asked in other areas, um, we can be sure that the curriculum didn't include science or other normal subjects, but was mainly focused on these terrorist interpretation of religion, which is unfortunately uh, a very distorted interpretation. So otherwise, they were trying to brainwash the children. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think so. I think so. And um, what was interesting as well, and I'll let you uh, finish off, Eva, because we just have a minute left, but one, one of the... Uh, I think it was Vanessa or somebody asked these kids, uh, these young boys, what do you want to be when they grow up? And they just shrugged their shoulders. They, they didn't have an answer for that. And uh, the translator we were with said, you know what? So 10 years ago, they would have said doctor. You know, they would have said engineer. 
architect <laughs> or mm-hmm. you know whatever but they had no answer and that just kind of typifies the the hopelessness um that that that's the result of of seven years of war but uh, go ahead eva i'll give you the floor for the last minute well, so I'll go back to positive things for the last minute. I just came back from the Latakia coast, and I spent a few days in an area called Wadi Kandil. And it's just a small stretch of the beach uh, with simple chalets you can rent for a modest $20 a day. But what was nice about it was that it's it's similar to uh, when I went to Tartus in 2016. You see a cross-section of Syrian life, of Syrian faith and Syrian culture um, on the beach. So you see people... Uh, smoking shisha, drinking, dancing, swimming. And these are people of all faiths. So it's it's really interesting always to see this because uh, it just is a microcosm of this wonderful pluralistic culture that is Syria. Yeah. yeah well, it's good to see, good to see some, some life coming back. And um, great, great that you've been able to witness uh, this kind of little resurgence in, in society and also in commerce and you know, it's great to hear just people getting rebuilding the country again. But it's going to take how how long? I mean, did you talk to people, Eva, about um, you know how the future? You know, how long did, were people talking about how long will it take to for the country to really get back on it on its feet? What what was the impression you got? Well, I mean, um, I, I don't think anybody can really say how long it's going to take to rebuild, especially when, you know, the U.S. is still occupying eastern Syria, Turkey still occupying northern Syria, and they haven't, we, uh, Syria hasn't been able to resolve the Idlib issue. Um, and I'm still waiting for a meeting with the Minister of Health, because I'd like to really um, hear from this ministry how the illegal sanctions on Syria have affected the, the health sector. I know that Professor Tim Anderson has looked at this some years ago, so I'd like to just kind of update this how the sanctions have affected the health um, sector, how years of this war have affected the health sector, because it's a sad, we, we can't gloss over it. It is a very tragic reality that even when the war on Syria ends, their economy has been devastated. So it's it's going to be a very uphill battle. But I think, I guess, I suppose the optimistic um, note is that Syria does have strong allies that are willing to stand with Syria and help in the rebuilding process. Mm. Yeah, a little bit of uh, uh, back and forth I've, I've seen on terms of the issue of rebuilding and also uh, funds being solicited by uh, Syria from some Western countries. And certainly there's an argument to be made, uh, everybody, about war reparations uh, for the losing side of this war. Uh, will they ever stump up and uh, pay for that in terms of reparations? Well, maybe that's something for the future that we can look at. Uh, and the international community can look at uh, down the road. But um, yeah, anyway, well, we're, we're really grateful uh, for you joining us, Eva, and giving us this uh, very valuable perspective uh, from on the ground in Syria. And we really appreciate your time. And uh, we wish you all the best and hope that uh, you stay safe uh, in your remaining journeys there on this occasion. But uh, thank you, Eva. All right. Thank you very much, Patrick. And thank you, Mike. Okay, there she goes, ladies and gentlemen. That's Eva Bartlett, independent journalist, uh, giving us a fantastic report from on the ground uh, in Syria. And we're going to take a short break uh, here on the Sunday Wire, and we're going to connect for the final segment. Uh, We're going to connect with our roving correspondent for digital culture and sport, uh, Basil Valentine, on the other side. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We'll be right back after these messages. Tune into the Sunday Wire. 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. UK 
live only on ACR and 21stCenturyWired.com.